Hello, I'm John Dennis. It's Thursday the 3rd of December. Today, James Hansen, one of the world's leading experts on global warming, tells The Guardian he hopes the UN summit in Copenhagen fails. The, fundam- the approach that's being talked about is so fundamentally wrong that it's better to reassess. Also today, Google's response to Rupert Murdoch. Let readers find your paid-for content with our search engine. In the House of Commons, Gordon Brown gets the better of David Cameron for once. Will Labour give the Tories a run for their money at the election? Mr Speaker, if he wanted to reduce the deficit, if he wanted to reduce the deficit, why does he persist with his inheritance tax policy that would cost a billion pounds? The French claim to have defeated English capitalism, with some justification, says our economics editor Larry Elliott. Patina Gapper wins The Guardian's first book award for An Elegy for Easterly, her stories about life in Zimbabwe. And the remarkable comedian Bill Bailey on the state of modern comedy. So I think people are sick of politicians, they're sick of, of corruption, they're sick of them. You know, they actually want it, it's almost like, you know, I don't even want to know about them. You know, it's like, I don't even know, I know that, I know, I don't need to be told that they're corrupt. I don't need any satire to tell me beyond satire. Guardian Daily with John Dennis on guardian.co.uk. First, here's Bill Overton with the headlines. The directors of the Royal Bank of Scotland are threatening to resign if the government stops them paying bonuses to staff. The bank, which has been bailed out by the taxpayer, wants to pay £1.5 billion in bonuses this year, 50% more than last year. Both the Chancellor and the City Minister have warned against it. Eight councils across England have been warned to improve the state of their care homes. The Care Quality Commission says their homes for vulnerable adults and the elderly are just not good enough. The councils include Cornwall in the west, Solihull and Peterborough in the Midlands, South Tyneside in the north and Surrey in the southeast. A Labour candidate in London has been sacked for attacking the Queen. Peter White, who is standing as a councillor in Havering, called the monarch a parasite and vermin. He was removed as a candidate by Labour last night, even though he has apologised. Foreign ministers are meeting at NATO's headquarters in Brussels today to discuss America's troop surge to Afghanistan. The Secretary-General has promised they'll send another 5,000 troops as well, but only Britain and Poland have so far made firm commitments. Golfer Tiger Woods has made a public apology on his website. He says he's let his family down with his transgressions, which he regrets with all of his heart. He goes on, I've not been true to my values and the behaviour my family deserves. But he hasn't gone into any detail and says his personal failings should be shared by his family alone. That's the story on the front pages of the tabloid papers this morning and also the Telegraph, which gives a full picture spread to the three women with whom he's been associated. Forgive me for I have sinned, says the caption. It's a similar headline in the mail, which says a third mistress has emerged. The Sun calls him Cheetah Tiger and headlines, I've let my wife down, I've let my family down and he's let his trousers down. The Times and the Telegraph give front-page space to the report on care homes. Care for 80,000 elderly not up to standard, says the Telegraph. Thousands condemned to live in squalid care homes in the Times. That paper also has a cheerful picture of the five British sailors released by Iran yesterday, who it describes as home and dry, of course. Our paper leads with an exclusive interview about the Copenhagen Climate Change Conference, but we also report a speech by Lord Mandelson in which we say he declares war on the Murdoch Empire. He accused news corporation of having an iron grip on pay television and wanted to import right-wing Fox News journalism to Britain. Finally, The Telegraph tells us about the 5,000 bankers who will earn a million pounds this year and the Mail says that we're being held to ransom by the bankers because bosses at RBS, yes, you own it, threaten to quit if they can't dole out huge bonuses. There's more news and sport all day at guardian.co.uk.
One of the world's leading climate scientists says he hopes world leaders fail to reach an agreement at the summit in Copenhagen because they won't go far enough. James Hansen is head of the NASA Goddard Institute for Space Studies in New York. I think it's just as well that we not have a substantive treaty because if it's going to be the Kyoto type thing and people agree to that, then they'll spend years trying to determine exactly what that means and what is the commitment, what are the, and what are the mechanisms. And, say, and these, the whole idea that you have goals which you're supposed to try to meet and that you have outs with offsets means that it's, it's, you know it's an attempt to continue business as usual. And as I mentioned in the book, this is analogous to the uh, indulgences that the Catholic Church sold in the Middle Ages, which is an excellent solution for both the church, the bishops collected lots of money, and the sinners got redemption so they could still go to heaven. So it's um, both parties liked that arrangement. Suzanne Goldenberg's our US environment correspondent. She's in our Washington office. Suzanne, what do you make of James Hansen hoping that Copenhagen fails? I think this is an area where the climate scientist is really, you know, going against the flow. This sets him apart from uh, just about everybody else uh, in the environmental community which supports cap and trade. And he recognizes this, but he still thinks there's, you know, a tiny crack in the door to promote his policy, which it would be just to put a tax on the price of carbon right at the mine or at the port. He was also asked about the leaked emails at the Climate Research Centre at the University of East Anglia. I think there were two fundamental mistakes uh, revealed by that. The one is... You have to make your data, your input data, available to the community. You can't say it's not available. I mean, that's the way, the sci- with science, you have to allow other people to try to re- duplicate your, your analysis. That's just very fundamental. And um, so that was one mistake. But the other one is the trying to prevent contrarians from making their viewpoint. And, I mean, you can say, well, it's shoddy science, so the peer review process should prevent them from publishing. But in any scientific issue, there are going to be some people who have contrary opinions. And you shouldn't try to prevent that, I don't think. I think that was a mistake. Suzanne, have these leaked emails caused much of a stir in the U.S.? Absolutely. There was a hearing in Congress on Wednesday in which John Holdren, who's President Obama's science advisor and who appears in these emails, has been uh, called to account for that. He was called to be part of, uh, by one of the leading Republicans, called him uh, someone who is a science fascist, uh, science McCarthyite. Holdren appears in the emails uh, criticizing uh, some of the contrarians on climate science, and he says they don't know what they're talking about. But he insists that the emails, although extremely embarrassing, doesn't alter the uh, main fact that the bulk of the science is sound and has been shown to be sound repeatedly. 
Also in the UK, uh, Labour says that nuclear power should be an important part of meeting our future energy needs, whereas the Conservatives have said they won't build any more nuclear power stations. James Hansen backs a nuclear option. I am disappointed that the Democratic Party is not able to rise above the minority of anti-nukes. I think that they, even if there's any uncertainty in the minds of politicians about whether nuclear power should play a role, it should not have stopped the R&D. And we still have, although I think China is going to pass us very soon, we still have the best expertise in in nuclear power. So it's it's really a terrible shame that in 1994 Clinton terminated that R&D because we could have had functioning fourth-generation nuclear power now. Suzanne, is that a mainstream view in the U.S.? I think that there is, you know, considerable and growing support here for uh, the use and expansion of nuclear power. Now, let's step back a bit. There haven't been any new nuclear plants built in the U.S. in a generation. And the process is extremely slow. It takes years and years to get approvals. But Hansen and uh, the Energy Secretary, Stephen Chu, and prominent people in Congress are now saying, look, you have to sort of stop this virtual moratorium on nuclear power, and we have to recognize that nuclear power will be part of the mix. I mean, James Hansen and others are careful to point out that you have to increase energy efficiency, you certainly have to spread the use of wind power and solar power, but you can't rule out the use of nuclear power. That's going to have to be part of the solution. Suzanne Goldenberg, and there's full coverage at guardian.co.uk slash environment. Also on The Guardian's website today. I'm Sarah Phillips from G2, The Guardian's daily features section. In today's issue, John Henley reports from Dubai, where it's business as usual despite the debt crisis. Zoe Williams ponders whether Delia Smith's retro style is still pleasing for TV viewers. And Madeline Bunting previews a new show at the Royal Academy, which addresses the relationship between art and the environment. An Elegy for Easterly by Patina Gapper, a collection of short stories set in Zimbabwe, has won the Guardian First Book Award. One of the judges was the BBC's Martha Carney. This is an amazing book of short stories by a Zimbabwean writer, Bettina Gapper. And what I loved about this book is it gives you the power of, of the horrors that are happening in Zimbabwe now. But each story brings characters to life. There's humour in there. There's a real freshness. And her style is just gorgeous, deceptively simple. Speaking to literary editor Claire Armitstead on our books podcast, Bettina Gapper gives her reaction to winning. I think I only believe it now that I'm actually here in The Guardian because at first I thought that uh, my editor Lee was, you know, pulling my leg in quite a horribly cruel way. (laughs) But now that I'm here, I think it's beginning to feel real. It's only the second time a short story collection has won this prize. You're you're very honoured. That's right. Uh, The first one to win was uh, Yi Yun Lee, A Thousand Years of Good Prayers, which was one of my favourite contemporary short story collections. So it's really uh, um, wonderful to be spoken of in the same breath as hers. Mm -hmm. Can you explain the title of the collection to us? A few people have asked me what it means. What is Easterly? Why is there an elegy to it? You know, this is one of those things that I, re- I find really difficult to explain because there wasn't really an intention to write the short to write a short story collection the, the story is 
developed over about a year and a half. I wrote about 22 stories in a year and a half. And then last year, when my agent decided to send out the manuscript of short stories, we had to call it something. So I came up with all sorts of titles. I remember at one time I wanted to call it The Small Deaths of Many Things. And she thought that sounded just too gloomy. And in the end, we decided that it might be best to go with the title of one of the stories in the collection. And the one that seemed to be more um, sort of capturing the essence of the collection was this one, An Elegy for Easterly. Easterly is basically a place. It's my stand-in for a place in Zimbabwe, in Harare, that was called Porter Farm, that was destroyed by the government in 2005. So it's an elegy for a place that is no longer there. And it's also, in a sense, an elegy for a Zimbabwe that is no longer there. Patina Gappa. And there's more at guardian.co.uk slash books. Gordon Brown delivered one of his better performances yesterday at Prime Minister's Questions. When David Cameron attacked Brown's handling of the economy, he turned the tables on the Tory leader, forcing him to defend the Conservatives' inheritance tax. The claim we were better prepared than other countries, that was wrong. Our deficit was worse than other countries. The claim that Britain was leading the world out of recession, we're still in recession. And the claim he had abolished, boom and bust, absolute rubbish. Isn't it the case his three biggest claims are his three biggest failures? The more he talks, the less he actually says. <laughs> Nothing. 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 Nothing about policy. We have helped 200,000 businesses in this country. We have helped half a million people stay out of unemployment. We are helping people who are, have problems with mortgage arrears. Mr. Speaker, if he wanted to reduce the deficit, if he wanted to reduce the deficit, why does he persist with his inheritance tax policy that would cost a billion pounds? Why does he have a domestic tax policy which is to help his friends with inheritance tax cuts and a global tax policy to help non-domicile candidates avoid any tax whatsoever? Michael White says the Prime Minister's performance was the latest in a series of tentative signs of Labour recovery. Three or four times he was very quick, and by the end of it I wondered if uh, who was writing his uh, lines for him. Perhaps Alistair Campbell's back in the building, uh, one of my colleagues said as we stood up. And, uh, you know, you do wonder, but I haven't got a definitive answer for you, except the obvious point, Labour's had a better two or three weeks. I mean, if this continues though, Mike, you know, we had a bit of a, um, uh, as you say, Cameron getting things wrong last week, um, not having not at his best this week at Prime Minister's Questions, some, some dodgy polls. Have Labour MPs got a spring in their step yet? Well, listening to the them. And again, I've you know done this for many years. You'll think there was a crucial by-election in Bogshire South because they roared away. And the speaker at one point said, "I don't know what you lo- you lot have had for breakfast." Of course, in the old days, Prime Minister's question time was after lunch, and he'd have said, "I don't know how much gin you all had at lunch." It was odd. It was very very noisy right from the start and very partisan. And um, these three polls, four polls, including the Guardians, must help a bit. Toys have made mistakes. Uh, things haven't gone very well for them. And, you know, there hasn't been a Labour leadership crisis. But mood changes, and that's a funny thing. Michael White. My name's John Dennis. Still to come on Guardian Daily, Bill Bailey talks to us about his new show, A Remarkable Guide to the Orchestra. All the traditional elements of rural Britain are in place. A pint of Cronenberg, a bowl of nachos... <laughs> And four teenagers setting fire to a Nissan Micro. But first, 
Google is to allow publishers of paid-for content to limit internet users' access to free news. The search engine's move follows Rupert Murdoch's accusations of theft. Murdoch plans to make people pay for online content, including that published by The Sun and The Times in the UK, and he's threatened to remove it from Google. Matt Wells presents The Guardian's Media Talk podcast. What Google are doing is that they are saying to the owners of news websites that want to charge users for access that they'll list their sites in search and that they will allow users to go to those uh, websites. The first page that they see will be free uh, and then after that uh, they'll have to pay to access for further further pages on the site and users will be able to do that five times in any one day. It's a bit complicated but basically what they're doing is they're saying to news organisations we, we understand that you have concerns about what we're doing that is indexing uh, your content uh, and you're not getting any of the sort of benefit from that. So we're, we're going to do a bit to help you along the way. Because they've explicitly said that it's possible to have uh, your content accessible via Google and via mm. Google News and have a paywall. That's right. I mean, it is absolutely possible. You could, I mean, th- there's a lot of hot air uh, um, around this. But actually, Google offers a whole load of different options if you want if you're a free site and you want all your stuff indexed on on google and get all the traffic that google provides and it's a lot of traffic then that's fine that's what what most sites currently do and you can also just put up a preview page so it's got the principal content but the detail you have to pay you, you have to pay for the for that and that will get indexed on google as well and if frankly you don't like google and you couldn't care less about google it's very easy to de-index your your site from google and i think what's happening particularly with Rupert Murdoch, who's leading the drumbeat on this, is actually what he's trying to do is to work up a kind of head of steam against Google. And Google looks, uh, it actually does look like Google feel that they're a bit on the back foot. They certainly have a PR problem. Ariana Huffington, uh, in a speech uh, earlier this week, said that Rupert Murdoch was confusing misappropriation, which is against the law, with aggregation, which she said was part of the web's DNA. And she got a point there. Yeah, that's right. I mean, Arianna Huffington is the uh, is a digital guru in the, in the United States. She runs the Huffington Post website, which is a commercially successful but free um, website that aggregates and, 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 and publishes comment about uh, US, mostly political, um, but also cultural issues. That she is somebody who's uh, successfully making a go of internet journalism pay and Rupert Murdoch is somebody who's not managing to make internet journalism pay so which one do you believe do you think that uh, Rupert Murdoch will go ahead and remove his content from Google yeah I mean he said he's going to do it it's, it, it would be astonishing if he do- doesn't do it and there is a plan he said he said he's going to do it start with the Times and Sunday Times in London and they're going to do it I'm sure they will uh, all the signs point to them doing it Matt Wells French President Nicolas Sarkozy alarmed business leaders yesterday by claiming victory over Anglo-Saxon capitalism, which he said was at the root of the financial crisis. He says French ideas for regulation are triumphing in Europe. Larry Elliott, our economics editor, says Sarkozy's got a point. Where I would agree with with Sarkozy is that it's quite clear that this two-and-a-half-year crisis is a crisis of Anglo-Saxon capitalism with too much speculation, too much reliance on asset price bubbles, too little reliance on the real economy. And so up to that point, I, I would say yes to Sarkozy. But yeah, I sort of wonder why he's doing 
what he's doing, uh, whether it's more for French internal consumption than it is for uh, the wider audience. Although there have been uh, some murmurs of discontent from the city over the new uh, European regulatory bodies or whatever it is that they're creating, I think the, the worry is that uh, Europe are going to be uh, interfering in the in the workings of the city. Are they right to be worried? Well, I don't think they're they're right to be worried that much. I think that ultimately the Treasury and the FSA here can block anything that they they really don't like, and I think to that extent what Sarkozy is doing is somewhat unhelpful because it makes um, Alistair Darling um, much more likely to go in and bat for the city against the idea of, uh, sort of Sarkozy Bonaparte coming over here and, uh, and sorting out the city of London. So what, what, what would be more helpful, I think, is if Darling rolled up his sleeves and got on with doing what he needs to do, which is to re-regulate the city himself. But the fact that he's now being forced to stand four square behind the bankers and the and the financial sector more generally is actually quite unhelpful to the idea of um, to the notion of radical reform here. So, I mean, I think there's pretty small chance of, of the new Brussels commissioner coming in and cleaning up the city. And in fact, he might put back the cause of reform. Larry Elliott. Bill Bailey, panellist on shows such as Have I Got News For You, Never Mind The Buzzcocks and QI, star of the much-admired sitcom Black Books, and, lest we forget, a gifted musician and stand-up comedian. His current tour is called Bill Bailey's Remarkable Guide to the Orchestra, and G2's Hannah Poole asked him what we can expect. Well, it is, as the name suggests, a bit of a guide to the orchestra, so uh, that takes the form of me uh, introducing instruments from the orchestra and sections of the orchestra, the woodwind, the strings, percussion, so on. And uh, perhaps uh, in a rather sort of comic and irreverent way, describing the instruments, how they make up the overall sound of the orchestra, and then perhaps just demonstrating how instruments can influence the sound or the power of the drama or the emotional response that we have those bits of music. There's great drama in EastEnders and the music is just not up to it. <laughs> it sounds like a barrow load of cold porridge being wheeled up a plank and dumped into a skip, doesn't it? <laughs> so this, it sounds quite analytical and I suppose it is in some ways, but my shows always are like that. <laughs> I sort of, kind of overanalyze things, so I have a tendency to do that. So it's, uh, it's, it's I suppose the the, the, the easiest way to describe it is like a, it's a double act between me and the orchestra, where often the orchestra provide the musical punchlines. There, there doesn't seem to be a lot of political comedy at the moment. No, no there, there doesn't. Um, and uh, I, I think really, I think maybe there's just a kind of just sense of fatigue about it. You know, a genuinely a genuine sense of, of utter fatigue with the news and current affairs. And people want escapism. You know, they want they want comedy that t- takes them out of themselves. You know, like comedy that's easy and accessible, and not not without any agenda, or it's not, you know, edgy, or it's not particularly offensive. It's you know, inclusive and. Is that Michael yeah. McIntyre? Yeah, that's right. You know, about personal foibles. You know, about just things that just happened to you in your own life. And think observational, simple observational comedy, straightforward observational comedy. It's been around for, you know, decades. All the traditional elements of rural Britain are in place. A pint of Cronenberg, a bowl of nachos, <laughs> and four teenagers setting fire to a Nissan Micro. 
but it's it's sort of you know, I think people just crave it. They just they've had enough of politics. I think people are sick of politicians. They're sick of of corruption. They're sick of them. You know, they actually want it. It's almost like you know, I don't even want to know about. Them. You know, I don't even know. I know that. I know. I don't need to be told that they're corrupt. I don't need any satire to tell me that. You almost can't satire it. You can't. It's beyond satire. (laughs) You know, they satirise themselves. They've kind of airbrushed themselves out of people's consciousness. Like, I don't want to know about them. Bill Bailey. Phil Maynard and Tim Maybe were the producers of today's edition of Guardian Daily. My name's John Dennis. Thanks for listening. 